Yeah, this is Peter Moore coming to you from Santa Barbara, California, and you're watching the Sega Guys. Welcome, Sega fans, once again to the Sega Sational world of the Sega Guys. We have a very special treat for you today. But with me, as always, is James the Sega Holic. How you doing, buddy? I am absolutely fantastic, mate, as uh, people will soon understand why. Absolutely, because we are not alone. We have a true industry legend with us today. He's been the head of EA, Xbox, and of course, Sega of America, most importantly. He's a man that helped solidify the Dreamcast as a legendary console and helped transform the gaming industry as we know it. It is none other than Peter Moore. Peter Moore, thank you so much for joining us. Sega legend, Xbox legend, amongst so many other things. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, yeah. Um, I live in Santa Barbara, California. How can I not be doing well? <laughs> oh, and with the weather and the temperatures we got here, it's insanely jealous. Yeah, insanely well, I hate to tell you, but it's probably Celsius 22 today, you know, the average January day. There we go. <laughs> makes, makes you sick. I mean, Glasgow is what I think we were lucky to see four or five degrees today, but that, that's why we're so pale. I've got filters on to try and make me look as if I've got kind of natural skin tone here, you know. Need some makeup. <laughs> Don't have that department, Peter. Well, can you get my wife yeah. to try it right enough? <laughs> Peter, of course, we're going to talk a bit of Sega today. So I just wanted to yeah. say, you know, before you, before you even join Sega, you know, I read that your son had a Sega Saturn. So straight away, the industry must have known that you had incredible taste in consoles. So, but yeah, how did the move to Sega come about, especially after over a decade in sportswear? Well, I had, um, you know, I bet, yeah, it was more than a decade. I was, a, uh, when I came to America, um, you know, playing and coaching football, but pretty quickly realized I needed a real job and um, got a job uh, here in Southern California, where I've ended up again, um, selling soccer shoes for Patrick. Uh, you guys are too young to remember Patrick's, but I don't remember. remember. We remember. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> you know, I worked my way through the ranks of Patrick and, you know, Southern California sales rep in 1982 so 40 years ago first time i ever came to santa barbara was to sell soccer shoes and then sales manager moved up to san francisco and then became president uh, of the company and uh, that really got me into you know proper corporate work and then i was recruited by reebok to um bring them into the world of global sports reebok in those days and i'm talking 1992 so i'm talking 30 years ago a, a very powerful competitor to nike mm -hmm. uh, but more of a lifestyle brand probably as it still is and um, they needed to globalize and so my background already in soccer had caught their eye and and i spent uh gosh uh eight and a half years at reebok in boston um where again i progressed from director of soccer to vice president of um, men's sports and then senior vice president of all global sports. So, but towards the end, and I'm talking late nineties, 98, mm -hmm. things were getting tough. Uh, and uh, you know, it, the Nike machine had kicked in in the mid nineties and, and all of a sudden we were completely marginalized as a brand and, and Nike was rolling over us. So it's time for me to move on a, a little bit. So um, 
got a call from uh, from my re executive recruiter, headhunter, and it's like, what do you know about video games? <laughs> Nothing other than I bought my son Tyler a, a Sega Saturn um, a couple of years ago, and almost immediately, if I remember, you know, they'd stopped making new games for it. So I was mm -hmm. a little bit miffed at that. <laughs> and he would say, well, you know, funny you should say that, but Sega's looking for somebody um, that can run their marketing in, in advance of a launch of a new console. And in those days, you know, still very much what I'll call boys in their bedrooms. You know, it was still very young. It was because the power of the machines and the type of content we could put through and the graphical um, resolutions weren't there yet to be able where we all enjoy now. It was still very much a phase you went through. But as a teenager, you were consumed by video games. Mm -hmm. And then everything seemed a little juvenile as you got into your later teens and mm -hmm. got a job or went to college or whatever. And uh, obviously not the case anymore, but in those days that was the case. And so, but the idea, and the reason I say that is that I was selling sneakers as they're known here. And the idea being that if I could sell sneakers to teenage boys and just in some instances, girls, uh, then I could certainly do the same with video games. So I, I, I kind of took a plunge and I was, or what would I be? I'd be 43, 44 years of age and completely changed careers. Um, moved back to San Francisco Bay area. Um, and pretty quickly, within about six months of me joining, um, my boss, Bernie Stoller, left the company and, and I was put into the, to the president role. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, all of a sudden, you know, there to launch the Dreamcast on 9999. So I completely immersed myself in the world of video games in those first few months and got up to speed on, spent a lot of time going back and to between San Francisco and Tokyo and getting an understanding of the competitive environment, the capabilities of the machine, what drives the consumer, what they're looking for. And, uh, you know, by the time I'd only been on the job, probably less than eight and a half months, and, and we launched the Dreamcast here in the United States to, to great critical acclaim, mm -hmm. as you know. Um, yes. But, um, you know, it was uh, uh, in the shadow of the impending a uh, new PlayStation coming through and, and um, you know, that you, you know all how it ended out and we, and we can talk about that. But, yeah, that's that's how I got into the business, uh, just through an executive recruiter linking athletic shoes, sneakers and video games, same mm -hmm. core demographic, same user um, and, and theoretically, you know, the same advertising channels, the same style of advertising and, and what have you. No. Um, changed radically since, obviously. Yes, uh, but Dreamcast, obviously kind of leading the way yeah. and kind of pioneering that. But, you know, Peter, you said there that, you know, whenever you joined in 98, obviously you'd bought your son, uh, the Saturn, kind of, you know, months before that. When you went into Sega, were you quite surprised that there was literally no Western kind of presence console-wise? Because, you know, Bernie had previously said to EGM that, you know, Saturn's not our future. That was before you joined. So, you know, you've went in there now, you're part of that kind of infrastructure. Was it a bit kind of surreal that you're going in with a kind of a product to come, but with nothing in place at all? Well, that was it. We weren't really selling anything at that point. We were, mm -hmm. everything was focused on preparing for the Dreamcast, getting, uh, and Bernie did a tremendous job in mm -hmm. getting third-party support, albeit one, maybe two games, but um, getting the likes in those days of an acclaim and a midway, mm -hmm. um, you know, to be able, and of course the Japanese publishers that, that Sega of Japan had round up with, mm -hmm the Capcoms and the Namcos and obviously Konami's. Um, but, you know, we we were completely and utterly focused because we knew this was our last shot. Mm -hmm. 
with what had happened with the Saturn, there was no way that the gamer, if, if the Dreamcast didn't land with a resounding thud and, and deliver the units that it needed to deliver, Sega as a hardware company uh, was going to be done, was going to be toasted. There's, there's no two ways. And we knew that um, very clearly because we knew that the, the PS2 was coming along, you know, in, in March of 2000. Mm -hmm. um, Sony was doing everything they could to, to fud us, you know, placing fear, <laughs> uncertainty, and doubt in the minds of the potential um, Dreamcast owner. Yep. Uh, positioning it as a transitional platform and, and, and saying thing, you know, look, you can buy your Dreamcast, but you're going to buy a PlayStation when the new one comes along. Yep. The, you know, promise of the emotion engine and, and um, you know, it, it's like playing Toy Story, and it sounds ridiculous now, but 20-odd years ago, uh, That's the right. graphical power um, mm -hmm. in, in that respect was, was going to be where, where it was all at. So, you know, is our best last shot here to, to maintain our first-party hardware and software positioning against a, a Sony and a Nintendo and, and, of course, you know, Microsoft coming onto the scene shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we knew we, our backs were against the wall. Dan, you're on mute, mate. <laughs> Apologies. So just coming back to what you said before, Peter, about you've come in and you join the company and then just several months later, your boss, Bernie Stolar, he leaves. Was there anything that you, you know, you did different or that you were determined to do to, to keep the momentum of the Dreamcast going to the, to you get to launch? Yeah. I mean, I think we need what I want, what I recall doing, we're talking 24 years ago now is, um, you know, leveraging back on, on the Sega brand. I still thought that the Sega brand had great, uh, credentials with the current gamer at that time. Uh, the genesis in this country had been massive. Mm -hmm. And we kind of lost our way a bit. But Sega had positioned itself as irreverent, um, had positioned itself well against Nintendo, all the way up to, you know, Congress, where they fought over, you know, <laughs> M-rated games. And I thought that was a huge opportunity. And I love being the challenger brand. I love being in a position to take punches and and, and not have to defend the top of the hill, but take the top of the hill. Mm -hmm. And so I did a lot of work in figuring out how we could reposition Sega um, to be able to try to wash away, if you will, all of the ill feeling of, of the Saturn, which was, which was uh, prevalent, uh, to say the least, with the mm -hmm. gaming community in, in the United States at that time. How we could um, bring back, you know, the irreverency, the Sega scream, which was, which was part and parcel of the advertising which we did and you know work with the respective ad agencies which was my job to create content and advertising positioning that would see us as the kind of feisty upstart but most importantly of course was the platform itself and when i say platform i don't mean just hardware i mean the concept of having what i think is the best launch lineup that will ever be it'll yeah. never be matched again and so uh, the dream of online gaming albeit dial up and in this country that was a 56k modem board modem and you know the utilization of great first party content obviously sonic uh leading the way there but the one thing that sega of japan had done well uh, and, and bernie had done well in this country was was to get third party support but it was it was support that was like reticent it was like all right here's a game and and, and i'm sure lots of you know dollars changed hands in support of the development costs mm -hmm. of those games uh, that preceded me but it's like we'll wait and see because 
you know, Sony's coming down the pike. Um, you know, you sell enough units and it'll be worth us doing a ready to rumble if you're midway or a soul caliber. Um, you know, all a trick style, you know, all of these games, Hydro Thunder that, that came along at launch. Um, but the key was always going to be, all right, where's game number two? Where's game number three? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, you know, I think um, Sony, as I say, had done a great job in, in convincing um, the, the prime publishers of that time to turn their development guns uh, with the dev kits that they provided mm. for the new PlayStation console coming through. Um, and, and it was going to be very difficult for us uh, to be able to continue the momentum that we got at launch, which was immense here in the United States. Mm. Um, if there wasn't going to be, here's the next 12, 18 months out at E3 of all of the games that are coming. And so heavy reliance very quickly on first party, the nine studios mm-hmm. uh, back in Tokyo in Haneda uh, to, to deliver content in the lack of, and let's not forget EA didn't deliver a single game mm-hmm. uh, for the Dreamcast. So our focus was always going to be Let's get out of the blocks. Let's hit our numbers, which we did. We were struggling with getting production. Um, and from the perspective of getting through uh, the, the second Christmas, which was going to be the key, mm-hmm. um, how do we um, hit our numbers, hit our attach rate of games to the hardware? And how do we drive online as, as a business um, without it being just a cost center? Um, things like SaganEck coming along. And how do we do innovative things with online, which you couldn't do with, with offline consoles at that no. time. So those were the criteria we were, we were after in, in, the, in the summer of 99 as we were thinking through the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah. I mean, the thing you mentioned there as well about the kind of importance that you put on the Sega branding, because I always remember, and I've still got the issue upstairs of, of Edge, and it's one of my favourite issues. It's a beautiful burnt orange cover. Um, and it's issue 60, and it was whenever the Dreamcast was unveiled at the New Challenge Conference in May 98, and Edge made a big deal about it because the actual headline on the cover is Sega is dead, long live the Dreamcast, and they made a very big point of pointing out that there was no Sega branding even on the, the unit they showed off, and the point they were making then was that you know, this is going to be a brand like a PlayStation. The kind of it's not the Sony PlayStation; it's the PlayStation. This is going to be the Dreamcast. Were you involved in the kind of chats with Sega of Japan about no, we need to get our name back on the front of that system? Not only involved, I tell them it's going to be the Sega Dreamcast. <laughs> I mean, I, I did that. You know, we we worked with our packaging company. It's the Sega Dreamcast. Mm. I didn't think Dreamcast could stand alone. Mm. Uh, in those days, it was still the Sony PlayStation. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the, the, the standalone that PlayStation now has an Xbox away from Microsoft. Now, and I didn't get much pushback. We, we, we added the Sega uh, name in front of Dreamcast. So you look at the US packaging, you'll find yeah. pictures online. It's Sega Dreamcast. Mm-hmm. I still feel that despite the, um, the trip uh, on the journey of that was the Sega Saturn, that the Sega brand, the um, positioning of being irreverent and speaking to a 15-year-old boy, let's call it out, was still relevant, was still there, and that we could leverage that. And, and our TV advertising in particular was uh, mysterious, um, played a little bit on the technology element of its thinking, mm-hmm. um, but also uh, tied into the the kind of 
you know, feisty upstarty challenger that is that that always was and probably always will be in, in Sega. We needed to play on that. And as a marketer, I thought that was rich territory. I wasn't bound by a major corporation like a Sony or Microsoft um, to to fit into something that that I couldn't stretch the boundaries. And you know, even. Even later on, we did an ad with a cheeky little redheaded kid that, you know, uh, PlayStation um, couldn't meet its production numbers. That's right. And, yeah. you know, and, it's like, and, 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 you know, and the guys at Sony, we, we all traded punches all the time. You know, at launch, we infamously infiltrated their golf tournament and um, had a guy running around in a Sonic suit and, and changed out the golf balls overnight with Sega logos and, and flew a plane overhead. I mean... This was the this were the days of the console wars. This were the days when maybe you're appealing to a teenage sense of humor, but they really appreciated um, that the brands would go nose to nose with each other, and uh, you know the console wars are real. And and a lot of the lessons that I learned came out of my days at Reebok, uh, where it's Reebok versus Nike in those days. Mm. Uh, you know, unfortunately, it's not anymore. But from the perspective of having brands go at it, A, that's good for the consumer because they've got to make their product better. Um, you know, it's got to be price competitive and they've got to like win you over because if they don't, mm -hmm. the other guy's going to get you. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that makes great brands and that makes great marketers and um, the consumer benefits. No, I mean, I mean that launch that you were talking about there, Peter, as well, $97,904,618.07, the biggest launch in entertainment history at that time. So there's actually a video on YouTube of you removing the orange papers, you know, to, to go yep. through all of the numbers. So, I mean, obviously, you're incredibly proud of that launch. You know, we notice that you never miss the Dreamcast anniversary on, on Twitter. You know, it's... Oh, yeah, totally. Dan yeah. and I were going through that, and I'm like, look, you never miss it. He's got his, <laughs> his console and his launch team kind of memorabilia there. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I mean, look, we... I remember... Um, in those days, you, you're hitting the road and you're selling to retailers. And, you know, it was, was disc-based. It was way before, obviously... You know, dial-up dial-up modems are not going to deliver games in any kind of efficiency. You know, and so <laughs> I remember going up to see Hollywood Video, which sounds strange, but that's up in Portland, Oregon, with with my senior vice president of sales, Chris Gilbert, who's still in the video game industry to this day, and being at PDX Portland Airport, about to fly back down to to SFO to San Francisco, and and sat there and we had a beer and and you know we got we got good. Um, response from Hollywood video. They, they, they went up against, believe it or not, Blockbuster. This, this is who we were selling. <laughs> and I said, I wonder, I wonder what the biggest retail number in entertainment sales history ever was. And I can, I can see myself saying this to Chris. And I said, I bet it's like a Star Wars something or whatever. And because mm. and, and, we were also comparing ourselves to, to you know, first night at box office or first 24 hours at box office. Mm -hmm. So it became the biggest entertainment launch. And it wasn't a huge number that I thought it was. And though it may have been 50, 60 million. I said, I bet we can blow that apart. Let's focus on that as regards, that's our target. That's our North Star. And that's what it are, you know, um, that's what our positioning is going to be is, is this is going to be the biggest entertainment launch in, in retail history in the US anyway, and probably in the world. That will then lift video games because it will show the power of games which we still had to work hard in those days and convincing people this this was not just 
you know, a phase people went through for a couple of years. It was a mm -hmm. meaningful entertainment medium that was going to last forever. Um, and, and yeah, we had a, an event that night on the night of 9-9 um, that um, actually it was the next night, I believe, because I was in New York uh, for the VMAs uh, for 9-9 for and then flew back. And we had, once we collected all the data the next night on 9-10, on September 10th, um, you know, we unfurled it. That was South of Market in San Francisco and got everybody together, you know, that had worked so hard mm. on um, getting us to where we're at and selling every single unit. And, and, you know, my sales team had, um, you know, figured out what the numbers were based on those days you had to call the retailer and the retailer <laughs> would tell you what they'd sold through and you did the math. Um, but we knew what, how many units we shipped in. We knew they're all gone. We knew that the retailers would know uh, how many games were sold through, not sold in, sold through. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, we extrapolated a number from that. And to your point, we, we just were shy of 100 million. Unbelievable. It's absolutely incredible when you think about, it, especially in the context of the time back then. So, as you say, Peter, what video games were perceived as for it to to blow that record, as you say, the next closest, biggest entertainment release out of the water. It's an outstanding achievement, not just for Sega, but for for video games in general. It's amazing. It was important for the industry because I think that um, you know it was, it was that moment where online was starting to become interesting, but. Um, nothing was going to be taking advantage better of, of online connection than games because the social element of games was going to elevate it from you and your mate on the couch of you and your mate down the road he doesn't need to come yeah. to your house anymore mm -hmm. uh, to you against hundreds of thousands if not millions of people and there was no other entertainment medium that, that was going to utilize uh, the internet uh, at that time anyway maybe movies now where, where streaming is becoming the way that we consume them but at that time bringing people together uh, to play to compete um you know was going to be very much hours in video games to, to to grasp or lose um uh, you still had to go to the cinema physically to watch a movie um movies were still you know 30 gigabytes or whatever they were um music long time before the iphone and the ipad uh, the ipod were coming and, and figuring out, you know, in the days of Napster and everything there of how it all worked. But 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 games and coming together and playing. I mean, it was amazing what the developers were able to do uh, with with that dial up modem. Of course, the the broadband adapter came a little bit further mm -hmm. on with with Quake 3 and Counter-Strike, if I recall, maybe Doom. Um, but, you know, it, it was incredible what our uh, development studios were able to do. Mm. It really was when you consider we had a 26.6K modem over here as well. See, I'm just yeah. laughing as well because, you know, Peter's talking about Napster, but we're, we're old enough to remember getting the tape recorder, putting the top 40 on the radio <laughs> and having it sitting there recording your song. So, yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, we've come a long way. These kids, these kids today, they don't. Guys, that's the thing, you yeah. know. Yeah, but that, that's it. I mean, you can track... You can track the development of how we consume content, just mm -hmm. content in, in general terms from those days. And look, I, you know, I go back and I and I revisited in the last few years vinyl. I'm looking at my record player, you know, everything, you know, buy vinyl again. And I don't know if you saw, certainly here in the U.S., vinyl outsold CDs last year. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that. So, so you've got that. And, and so I think that, that ultimately, and, and we were still very much stuck in the world of physical media in those days. And, mm -hmm. and uh you know, the, the GD-ROM, which was the, um, 
the format we used for the Dreamcast, I think, was 640 megs, you know, when we were, it was huge. And um, we were able to get great games on that, um, you know, and now today that hardly gives you the audio soundtrack. <laughs> game, but, um, we were able to, to, to put great games on that and, and started to mess around with a little bit of how you could bug fix and update and, and, and maybe put some content up there. It wasn't easy through dial-up. Yeah. Um, it was still very much, here's the game, play the game, put it on the shelf, give it to your little brother, go trade it in a GameStop, do whatever. But mm-hmm. once you played the game, there's nothing else coming. Um, mm-hmm. you know, very different to where we are today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, you know, the Dreamcast has this amazing launch of all these innovations, especially the online component. And then the PS2 comes out, you know, it may next may 2000 and eclipses it basically seemingly just on playstation branding and hype alone mm-hmm. you know you can't just be our sega fans that kind of looked at that playstation launch lineup and just thought is that all it is mm-hmm. you know <laughs> i mean Peter, you must yeah. I, I, you've already mentioned fear uncertainty and doubt do you really think do you agree that it probably is more of a case that you know sony fudded uh, very Sega's much so rather than yeah. anything else I think they footed footed us well. I've always somewhat congratulated them on what they did. They mm. they placed that fear, uncertainty, and doubt in the minds of the of the gamers. We also, but to you know, we, we have to take the blame, if you will, that we couldn't project out mm-hmm. at E3. Certainly, uh, two thousand E3. You know, we had a great show and great booth and whatever, but it was very difficult to show. Here's the next, you know, two years of games that are coming down the pike, and and because we just didn't have that. Now look, we had tremendous first party support, nine studios, you know, that that were cranking out great content, but the there were, and I was spending a lot of time um, supporting uh, Sega of Japan in in seeing Japanese publishers when I would go over on a very regular basis to to Tokyo, but you know, it just, you know, not having EA. Uh, was challenging my job as well uh, in the U.S., where it was seen that you, if you're a first party, you better have your own sports brand. And so mm-hmm. we spent a lot of time uh, because we, we didn't have Madden or FIFA or anything like that. Uh, we spent a lot of time building out Sega Sports 2K, yeah. uh, which is what it was, and, and building out and doing all the licensing with the NFL, the NBA, the NHL. Uh, tennis, um, golf, I mean, everything. And uh, that was all done uh, within uh, my group of, of building out that sports brand and, and the 2K brand. And, and ironically, of course, went over to take two. But from the perspective of, of what we were able to do, and that was absolutely critical. We didn't have sports. Um, and sports gave us a great platform for showing off the power of the hardware, mm-hmm. uh, in particular, the NFL and the NBA yeah. games. Um, and, and I remember... Uh, the first real meaningful game we got to run online to show was NBA 2K, um, may have been 2K1, but NBA 2K, Sega Sports NBA 2K, uh, with Alan Iverson on the cover, and, and it was just amazing, you know, at 30 frames a second, relatively lag-free uh, on, a, on a 33K board modem that we were able to show these games. And so we spent a tremendous amount of time evangelizing and advocating and, and trying incredibly hard but, you know, towards the end, it was clear that um, we just weren't going to get over the hump in, in that Christmas of 2000. Um, and, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, I think I went over in January of 2001 uh, to Haneda and um, presented our numbers. 
Japan had already kind of like the writing was on the wall there mm -hmm. and Europe was kind of hanging mm -hmm. on, um, but was told, all right, you know, it's it's not gonna we're, we're not gonna be able to sustain mm -hmm. producing hardware that's losing money mm -hmm. because the attach rate isn't there uh, because you know I think we were selling at one ninety nine hundred ninety nine dollars and probably costing closer to two fifty two sixty mm -hmm. you need software attach rates and it just wasn't there so um, you know Irimajiri San and and Sato San uh, you know the guys in charge there said. You know, we're going to shut it down and we're going to move to third party. And you're going to tell the world. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, no no uh, pressure. <laughs> well, it's just, yeah, we, it needed to be done. I often get blamed um, for, for, for killing the Dreamcast. That still sits around. And, no, no. I didn't do that. I, I did an interview where I said I had to make the call, meaning the telephone call. Mm. And people took that as the decision. So oh. it's one of the things I smile at when I still see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, stuff that goes on. So yeah, we uh, January thirty first. I you know organized a conference call. Um, hundreds of people on the call, media, industry colleagues, and announced that Sega was getting out of the hardware business. Unfortunately, you know, large reduction in force all around the world, and we were going to move to be a third party. And so you know, the following week, tail between legs, I'm calling. Sony and Nintendo for um, dev kits um, to start putting Sega content on, on their platforms. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's the thing as well, Peter. It's like, obviously, I was in my, my kind of early 20s whenever the Dreamcast came out, Daniel, not far behind me. And it was actually quite annoying because even retailers seem to be getting in on this whole like the, the Dreamcast was like a toy but you know, PlayStation 2 has a DVD player, it's the mature man's games console. And it was. Whenever I got, I mean, I, I bought my PlayStation 2, I managed to get a hold of one at launch, and if I remember, I had Tekken Tag, Ridge Racer 5, and um, FIFA 2001 as my bundle, and I got it home, my Japanese Dreamcast that I'd imported the year before sitting there, and I fired up Ridge Racer 5, and I was appalled by the jaggies on this. I felt as if my Dreamcast was laughing at me for believing the hype, but, you know, I think Sony had said, you mentioned the Toy Story graphics in real time. I'm sure they also at one point said that the pod racing scene from episode one, The Phantom Menace, yeah. the emotion yeah. engine can do that for you in real time. And you're like, whenever the actual unit hit, you, you actually realise people were being conned. The, the Dreamcast for at least, I would say, 12 to 14 months matched, if not eclipsed, anything that the PlayStation 2 put out. It was So if it was galling for us, you know, as fans of the system, fans of the company, to see that you guys who have put everything into launching this must have been pulling your hair out. Yeah, I mean, look, if I recall, and again, going back into the depths of my memory banks here, that they had a real issue with anti-aliasing at launch, and it just, you know, yep. that that that'll yep. just give you the jaggies all day long. <laughs> Sony, yep. Sony has a track record. Look, I I love them all, right? And 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 particularly working at EA, you know, for ten years, hard far be it for me to, to to criticize Sony, but you know they did it there, um, and and it was all based on a little bit on on FUD, but but also some false promises uh, a little bit to get them over the hump. They leveraged their brand brilliantly. They had a lot more money than Sega of Japan. Uh, to be able to drive that forward. And it was getting already to where the PlayStation name was a standalone. Um, for me, if I can fast forward five years, when launching the Xbox 360, it was never more prevalent uh, at E3 when 
in Japan, they're already showing the Bouncer and Kesson, if you remember those games. Yeah, with, I do, yep. You know, like, but CGI cutscenes, you know, and somewhat pretending that they were, you know, in-game, in-engine gameplay. And then, of course, I'll never forget Killzone at that E3, which, you know, was, <laughs> was like a movie. But then <laughs> they rely on the fact when they actually, you know, I don't know, a year later ship the console, that you forget what you saw. <laughs> Uh, I didn't, you know, oh, and so, a lot of us didn't. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and if I recall, they had done, you know, they they found a a, a, a CGI company up in Scotland to do. I'd, I'd have to go really? back and look. Yeah, I mean, it's sixteen, seventeen years, but I can remember that E three like it was yesterday. We were showing, you know, Halo and and everything, um, Halo two. You know, I've been showing in-game, in in-engine, and I insisted that that this was all in-engine, and we were launching with Epic, if you will, the Unreal Engine 3 at that time with mm -hmm. Gears of War. Yeah. What a game. What uh, a game. Yeah, and, 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 but, you know, had the, the guts to put it live, um, you know, on the stage at E3. And, in fact, it froze. We, you know, we had a Ghost Rider in the background, Blake Fisher, who worked for us at, at Xbox, and, you know, the Ghost Rider uh, plays along so that mm. if, if something, because you're – at best, it was probably early beta that you're playing with, mm -hmm. with Marcus Phoenix, and mm -hmm. and and, and um, it froze. And, and but you wouldn't. Well, yeah, if you were in the theater, you would have seen a little blip, but but straight away changed the input because the original had mm -hmm. frozen. But the Ghost Rider Blake was was playing along every moment, so that you flipped inputs when. Um, a particular build, which was always going to be unstable, would freeze so that, you you know, for the most part, you could continue on to the end mm. of the demo. Uh, and, yeah, and you maybe didn't – I don't think we hid that it froze, but, but for enjoyment of the, you know, kind of people in the theater. And, and by then, everything was being streamed at home as well, so you could mm -hmm. watch it at home. But, yeah, that's the nature of the business. I mean, you just – Fake it till you make it um, from the perspective of, <laughs> of convincing people, which is why, you know, the, the, the infamous Gears, not infamous, famous Gears of War commercial, you know, Mad World with, Mad World. with the Gary Drew version. You know, they, they, the, and I hate to, I'm jumping to Xbox and I apologize. Oh, we're going wrong. to go there anyway. We're going to go there anyway, Peter. That's fine. Yeah, but it, but it was, um, to the credit, it was McCann Erickson, our agency, that came in, and I always remember, you know, up in Seattle mm -hmm. there, and walked in, and it was a little awkward, got in a conference room, they switched all the lights out, just tad awkward, like 10 guys there in a dark room, and um, they played that Mad World, the, the Gary Jewell version, and said, now imagine um, Gears of War, poignant Gears of War, uh, with Marcus um, being, you know, set to this, albeit we won't be able to pull something from the game. The game is too frenetic, too violent, and yet the music is too poignant. Mm -hmm. So we created what you eventually saw, and at first it was going to be, and I think it was Digital Domain that did it, um, that that the guys who worked on it, interestingly, um, if you've seen Top Gun, the latest Top Gun, the director mm -hmm. is the guy that is the same guy that worked on Gears of War for us. Really? Um, there you go. Yeah. Wow. And so... Um, but we, we did that, and, and I think video game advertising, certainly that long-form advertising changed forever then. It wasn't all heavy metal and explosions anymore. Mm. There was a sense of Aye. maturity and storytelling and the emotions that we had as gamers that, that were personal at that time that, that advertisers never dared to 
like put on the screen mm. because they were told, here's the formula. Shit's got to blow up. People are going to die. <laughs> ACDC, Metallica, Def Leppard, you know, that's who's got to be. And, and that's, that's what works for this consumer. And we mm. thought, no, we're going to, we're going to do something different. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway. And so that was the story of, of Gears of War there. Phenomenal. Fantastic. I mean, just segging from Sega to Xbox now, obviously, when the Dreamcast was discontinued, in Dean Takahashi's book, Open the Xbox, there's talk of, there was talk of Microsoft buying Sega, maybe even the Xbox being backwards compatible with the Dreamcast. Were you involved with any of those discussions at all? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was... Sure, people, you know, at Microsoft, as they've shown, you know, not afraid of, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. spilling the cash on things. Uh, but in those days, not necessarily in the world of video games. Today, as we know, I mean, potentially the, the biggest, the company's biggest acquisition ever, if it ever goes through. It's getting very messy. <laughs> yeah. But I think that, that ultimately, um, you see, online was important to Microsoft, very important. The, the belief that, that, Bill definitely had. He wasn't going to get into just a war with the Japanese, if you will, on um, who can make the best games and who can, you know, whose CPU, GPU, you know, is going to look work the best, look the best. He truly believed that that getting online was going to be the key of uh, amassing millions of people, um, as he'd already done with Windows, and he also believed it was the key to getting the console sat next to the television uh, in the living room rather than in Joey's bedroom, um, where it had previously been for probably 15 years. Uh, and, the, 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 and, and, you know, to be fair, the capabilities of, of, of the Xbox were a little bit more than games. Music was a big deal. Um, you know, being able to do, like we did things like photo albums and stuff that you could do, but most importantly, Xbox Live. Right. And, yep. and that was going to be the key to, if you will, consolidating the, the gamer base, not only saying we've got 2 million units sold to people we actually don't know because it went through Best Buy or Walmart or Target. No, we're going to have 2 million people we know, mm -hmm. and we're going to be able to give them a great gaming experience. And we're also going to be able, quite frankly, to commercialize them, if you will, and monetize them and, and find ways to engage with them that they're simply going to spend more money. And, Online was always going to be the key to that. So, so the Dreamcast, which you know passed the baton, mm -hmm. if you will, of online to to Xbox, what what became the Xbox 360, codenamed Xenon for the <laughs> longest time, mm. um, and, and and people like Robbie Bach, George Peckham, head of third party, had John Smith. Remember, the Dreamcast had a Microsoft logo on the back, yeah, because it was Windows CE. Yep. Uh, um, it had more Microsoft logos than the Xbox 360. <laughs> because the complete op opposite of Sega Dreamcast is, I said, we're not putting the Microsoft logo. This is going to be the Xbox. Um, so, um, and, and I think that that thread of online was, was a common thread. I, I used to go after Sony and certainly Nintendo that just didn't know how to do online in those days. They just, the, the, remember, they charged for it you know, we charge for it, and and the PlayStation Network in those days was free. But the the experience that we would we at Xbox were delivering was worth your five dollars a month by far. Um, mm -hmm. And and we were not afraid of 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 building out something um, 
on the back of revenue that was coming in from gamers to to to, to enhance that gaming experience. Mm -hmm. So it truly became hardware, software, and services, and it truly became what we all take for granted now is this yeah. seamless experience that that has no beginning and end, and you can talk to anybody and and, and engage with anybody and and buy all kinds of things should you wish yep. you know online because of the internet yeah i mean the the, the original xbox is kind of you know dubbed the dreamcast too and one thing i've always wondered peter is that all those games like your sega gt jet set radio future gun valkyrie crazy taxi 3 you know virtua fighter 4 given the kind of short kind of turnaround between Dreamcast being discontinued and then the original Xbox kind of coming out and then the games going to PlayStation 2, were those games at any point Dreamcast games? Did you ever go to Japan and see these games in development for Dreamcast or were they always kind of maybe, no, they just went to Xbox? I've always wondered, you know, were these games ever going to be Dreamcast games and we were denied them because of the discontinuation? What you have to remember um, is is so many, you know, the studios were called AM, AM2, AM3, mm -hmm. Amusement Machine. Yeah. So the roots of, of Sega in Haneda is, and was for the longest time after the Dreamcast, you know, floated off into the distance, we're still creating great content for physical arcade machines. Yep. And, and that always gave Sega, I always thought, a legs up because they created content that was instantly fun. Instantly, like you're, you're scrambling for your quarter or your hundred yen or whatever your your fifty p, um, and and because you had you know you had to deliver content that would make you continue to want to play after ninety seconds or two minutes, and I think that the Naomi board, the motherboard, was this consistent board that that was very fungible that that certainly flipped easily to the Dreamcast, but mm -hmm. having it. Uh, on the Xbox wasn't big. Did I ever see? I think the writing was on the wall. And it, but I'm, but for the most part, most of those studios were developing, you know, their their shorter form content for the arcade machine. Still, right. knowing full well, Crazy Taxi, great example. Crazy yep. Taxi was an arcade game, right? Yep. Now it, it it really caught the imagination. It was a great game, and and then it became bigger. Uh, but the original Crazy Taxi on the Naomi board <coughs> was was very much. Focused on, yeah, actually, if you played it, you know, like, all right, let's go. Let's get to Pizza Express. Let's get to Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> and let's, you know, make sure we deliver our passengers. Uh, and, and bang, you're putting money in from the get-go. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so, me. yeah, so speaking of those studios, um, you famously recalled a story where someone called you that guy who gave Shemu away to Xbox or something, something less pleasant, I, feel, I believe he said <laughs> to you. But... Um, Obviously, the strategy of bringing some of these titles to Xbox was extremely successful. Did the teams have Xbox in mind when they were developing these, or was it on a case-by-case -case basis? Did uh, did these areas approach you? How did how did it all manifest? To the credit of Microsoft and the Xbox team, when when, when things were going downhill, uh, Robbie Bach, the people I mentioned, George Peckham, Blake Fisher, John Smith on the CE side, all reached out and said, "How can we help?" How can we look? And, and I'm sure it's selfish. Like we like that content, and we don't have yeah. a ton of yeah. first party right now. But it was very much how can we how can we help you? Because we believe in online gaming, and you've shown us the way, albeit through dial-up, in how to do it. And of course, you know the the 
they wanted a leg up on any relationship that Sony or Nintendo had. And then the, the competitive dynamic worked in their favor because Sega, Sony, and Nintendo have been trading punches for, <laughs> for, for, for decades. And, you know, Microsoft had been nothing, not only supportive, but the freaking operating system for the Dreamcast was, was, you know, Windows CE. So there was a natural relationship there. Um, Bill would go over to Japan, a big market for Microsoft, and, and spent some time over there, went to TGS and, and, and you know, um, worked with um, Sega Japan on, on, on appearances and, you know, he, um, and, and, and I think he saw an opportunity, bluntly, as did all of the Xbox team, to, to pick up where Sega had left. And I, and I always say the baton was passed. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a Sega was like stumbling to the floor as they were doing <laughs> it, but the baton yeah. was passed. The lessons were learned, the path was shown, the journey had just begun on online gaming, but you know, every every journey, you know, begins with the first step. And um, you know, unfortunately, it's the old expression: you know, the pioneers get the arrows, the settlers get the homes and or the land. You know, and 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 plenty of arrows came Sega's way. Um, so from that perspective, um, I think it was pretty natural and uh, opportunistic for. The folks at Microsoft to reach out and say, you know, how can we help? What can we do? Here's some dev kits. Um, you know, we'll, come on in when you get chance. We'll give you a little under the hood look at what we're planning for a couple of years from now. And we believe in online. And and by the way, not dial up. We believe in broadband. Mm -hmm. And our next console um, is going to be broadband only. And, and this is a time when 80% of the world is still connecting via, via dial-up. But said, no, you know, we're going to future-proof this piece of hardware. And, you know, if you're in the world of dial-up, well, maybe Xbox 360 isn't for you. You know, and so that was the that was positioning we took. Um, and then, in, you know, very fortunately in those two, three years, you know, broadband was becoming ubiquitous. Um, Cat5, you know, everything was being, certainly in this country, Cables were, you know, being run to everybody's home, mm -hmm. and we were all able to get broadband. But you add high def onto that mm -hmm. as well, yeah. and um, you know, the Xbox 360 was the first kind of high def machine before televisions yep. being rolled out that were reasonably priced and generally available. And and you know, I always remember um, the folks at, at Best Buy saying, "We need some Xbox 360 consoles in the TV section to show what high def content looks like." Yeah, so me. Yeah, we, we want to. Yeah, we want to show off at least 720p, if not 1080p, 1080i, and 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 you know there wasn't enough content uh, other than video games. You, you're Gears of War was a little tricky in in the in the TV section, but games like Cameo, you know, you could um, gorgeous and and. I always remember Best Buy saying, "Yeah, give us, give us Cameo. It's fr you know, family friendly, beautifully rendered, and shows off, you know, high def." And yeah, sure, if we sell a console, that's great. But we're about selling televisions. Yeah, <laughs> this, this is where it's at. I, mean, I, I remember that E3 as well. Whenever you launched the 360, it was yourself, G. Allard, and Robbie Back that were on stage. And I remember the slide you actually stood in front of it, and it was like you announced that every Xbox 360 game will be. HD ready and that back in 2005 that was a huge deal you know you, you, what you were going from to what you were about to witness it was it was crazy yeah I mean you've got to the, the thing I learned particularly going to Microsoft is that 
you know, you're, yeah, you're working today, but you're planning for three years down the road, and then you have to, you have to be a futurist. Uh, and, and thank goodness, you know, we had some, you know, in particular, people like Jay Allard. This is what you know, 2009 is going to look like, and we got to, uh, our, our console better last for five, six years, and we better be ready. Um, you know, things like the hard drive, obviously. The idea of having a detachable hard drive was brilliant because then it's like it starts off. Well, if you start off, you have to think it was two gigabytes if you had the yeah, hard drive on there. Funny, you know, yeah. and, then, and then by the time I think it was done and dusted, you had a terabyte hard drive that, you know, <laughs> uh, you can know. But, but it future-proofed the path, the journey uh, of, of that console and allowed it to have a longer tail probably than, than it didn't. Concurrently, you know, broadband speeds getting better, getting cheaper, uh, being ubiquitous in, in homes all around the world. And then developers learning to, you know, make these games and, and knowing full well that, yeah, if you're doing uh, a, a gorgeously rendered 1080p game with a massive soundtrack, mm-hmm. um, you better have a hard drive, you know. And, yeah. and our biggest issue I always remember was hard drive management in the early days is like, <laughs> what do I delete to make room for this, you know? Mm-hmm. And so. And so these were all, and, and, and then the, you know, the Blu-ray battles, which, oh. which we, we just had fun with HD DVD. I mean, we just wanted to slow down Blu-ray mm-hmm, as yeah. best we could. Uh, and so bizarrely, we got behind HD DVD, had a HD DVD player that was like, I had mini- that. Yep. yeah, Xbox and, and got Peter Jackson behind it and, you know, with King Kong and, and a few other, yep. and all it did. All it did was slow everything down. You know, it was my one opportunity to FUD Sony. <laughs> <laughs> it took you long enough, Peter, literally... but you, you got your own back on them a wee bit. Yeah, I mean, and then we had a guy who's still a good friend, Albert Pinello, you know, and, and Albert, just go mess with him. Just, like, slow it down. Go work. <laughs> I think it was Toshiba that was our partner in this, and it just, yeah. everything was like, if we can delay this a year, this, you know, the, you've got to have a PlayStation, whatever it was, three by then to to um, to run Blu-ray, which will be the ubiquitous format. Look, I think there's no doubt in our minds that ultimately that was was going to end up. Yeah. But it's like getting into the ring and think, I'm going to go 15 rounds. I'm probably going to lose at the end, but I'm going to I'm going to slug it out for 15 <laughs> rounds, slow things down, and we slowed it down to where yep. we probably sold several million extra units of Xbox 360 without Blu-ray being the ubiquitous uh, format for, for consuming physical media content. That's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, there was also the belief that, that eventually Blu-ray would have a limited time span. Um, this was, I remember Bill Gates, this is that, that uh, broadband speeds, maybe fiber to the home, all these things would come where physical media goes away. So Blu- Blu-ray didn't become um, mm-hmm. a player. Now it, it became ubiquitous and they sold probably billions of discs, but we, we slowed them down, uh, slowed them down to where the Xbox 60 became um, supremely successful. Red rings of death notwithstanding. I don't, don't like to talk about them because I'm always of the impression and the opinion, if it wasn't for the RROD, I think 360 would have buried PS3 completely. Um, and not kind of try to sound kind of fanboyish, but... I love the 360, you know, Gears of War, the Mad World trailer, everything about that. It's just, it's it's planted in there. It's part of kind of gaming heritage that we've got. But I just think if it wasn't for that, then 
I, I really think Sony, given the E3 they had, the $600, the Ridge Racer stuff and all that, 360 would just have completely crushed at that generation. And the fact that it finished kind of more or less level with PS3, yeah. despite that, is testament to the work that you guys done. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you look at that as the golden era that, that you know, I think when the dust settled, I think, you believe the numbers or not, but I think both sold somewhere in the region of about 120 to 130 million units sold through. So you've got a quarter of a billion um, <laughs> video game consoles selling through that were probably a touch rate of, of 10 to 15 games. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's when I think the explosion of uh, what gaming was about, it became mainstream. It became meaningful, not just to, um, uh, you know, the GameStops and, and HMB or Virgin in the UK or whatever, mm -hmm. but, but everybody wanted to be a part of that. And then you had some of the biggest intellectual property in the world clamoring, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings, the Harry Potters, the, obviously all the sports leagues, everybody wanted in on this, mm -hmm. uh, not only for money, but to be able to get to an audience uh, that, that they couldn't get to ordinarily, which was kind of millennials then and, and mm -hmm. certainly Gen Z now. Superb. But Peter, if we, I, don't know, I don't think we've got too much time left, so we've got a couple of last questions for you. So I think the first one, and this is one that James is very keen to know the answer on, obviously we've talked about the portfolio that Sega had uh, and certain games. Do you know what happened with Virtua Fighter 4? Why, <laughs> why was there never a an Xbox port? Um, because Ooh, was it How did Sony get that? You know, <laughs> it's just, did you they know, just come in and just take, we'll just take the crown jewel and you can have the rest? I've always wondered that. Uh, was that you, Suzuki? I'm trying to remember. It, it was, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I, you know, when I moved to, to you know, I was, I was up in Seattle by 2003 in the spring and focused on other things. So whilst I, you know, still stayed in contact with everybody, whatever transpired afterwards, I was not ever going back to... <laughs> Haneda, that's for sure. Um, and uh, so I lost track of all the, the dirt, the political infighting, everything that was going on back there. So I, I have no idea. But if I recall, that was you, Suzuki. But at the same time, complete focus on Shenmue, my assumption yeah. is, you know. And so that Virtua Fighter, great series, but, you know, go somewhere else with it. I think the focus was Shenmue. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, the one thing that's always been apparent is just your your passion for the industry. It's come across, you know, as we've been speaking to you, but it's been obvious for the, you know, the 20 years that we've we've seen you, you know, from the Dreamcast days all the way through to, you know, the present day and the here and now. But what is, I mean, even Halo 2 tattoo and all of that, you know, <laughs> what what is it that you're most proud of? Obviously, you've got a fantastic contribution to video games, to the industry and the hobby in general. What are you most proud of? Yeah, I think that, um, when you think about, you know, by the time it was done and dusty, it's been 20 years of my career, you know, there, there, thereabouts of being involved there. And I was very fortunate to join, um, you know, at, at the wrong time for Reebok, the right time for me. It's one of those things you look back on your career and you go, this hasn't happened. Or, you, you know, you turn left there or you said no to that recruiter, whatever. Um, the, the safe bet for me would have been to stay in athletic shoes. But there was something about online when it was mentioned to me by the recruiter that they're going to do online that really piqued my interest i thought mm. Man, that that feels like this could take this away from just being a, a little boy's thing to being something that could be massive going forward here it, and so 
I'd like to think that um, in my days, with, with, certainly with Sega and, and, and fighting the good fight for the Dreamcast and online gaming and trading punches with Sony and, and, and then, of course, you know, going to Xbox, which was amazing for me and, and really helping lead a, uh, an incredible team that we were building on the fly uh, there in, in Seattle um, to, as I said, you know, with, with the PlayStation 3 coming along at the same time, if you will, revolutionize our industry from one of, of somewhat niche and narrow, and, and I don't mean to diminish where it was, because I'm talking 15, 16 years ago, but exploding them. Mm -hmm. And whether people like it or not, your console was more than just playing games. And, and, mm -hmm. it, and it was a social device. It was, it was a way to communicate with millions of people of like-minded individuals. And it was driving massive business for companies, both inside the industry, as well as those at the retail end. And and you know you you had the best buys you know uh, some parts staying in business for a while there um, because of their gaming they they were very focused on gaming and building it out but but I, I you know I was I was part of the industry and I was very blessed to see it from its roots if you will um, because if we hadn't embraced it online as an industry you know we'd be an alarm clock at this point, you know, just, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, and if, if games were still offline and, and I remember, you know, thumping my chest and telling everything, you know, 10 years ago, get, games are going to be online and, and gamers didn't like it. Oh, I want my mm -hmm. offline experience. I no <laughs> games are, whether you like it or not, games are online and every game in the future is going to have an online component um, that will connect you. Oh, that's big brother, you know, and, and so, you think of all of these things and, and to make change, you know, the old, if you're going to make an omelet, you've got to break a few eggs and, yeah. and it's what we believed in. And so I was very fortunate to be involved with three great companies at the time. Um, and, you know, being the front man more than anything else, God forbid, you know, didn't write any code. And, um, you know, I, I, I was very, very fortunate in particular to be at EA and C, which is a whole different conversation and, and, mm. and how the embracing of digital, um, you know, as controversial as EA sometimes is, which always baffles me. But I was a very, very fortunate uh, individual to come in there as president of EA Sports mm -hmm. and then chief operating officer and, and really be at the forefront of transforming the way that we think about consuming games now. Whether, whether you liked it or not, it was like, you're going to download the games. These games are going to last forever. You're going to buy things to you know, enhance your gaming experience or not, but, you know, and games like FIFA have changed the world. Mm -hmm. No doubt in my mind, games like FIFA have changed the world and great pride in that one as regards not only driving billions of dollars for the industry and for football leagues around the world, Premier League and everybody else we had deals with, but, but maintaining back end of millennials and all Gen Zs a love of football <laughs> and, and a deep love of football, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I know it's only a game, but you go talk to a hardcore FIFA player oh. or EA Sports FC, they're going to tell you yeah. who should be playing in midfield for Lithuania at the Euro <laughs> and what they're worth in foot. So. Oh, fantastic stuff. Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you so much for your time My today. My pleasure. Um, Thank you, you very much. much. Yeah, that was the legendary Peter Moore. Hope all of our viewers enjoyed the show, all of our listeners too. Please get in touch, either through the YouTube comments below, you can reach out to us on the Radio Sega Discord, or on Twitter, you can catch me at Swooper underscore D, you can catch James at the Sega Holic, you can catch the account at Sega Guys, 
But until next time, stay retro, stay Sega, and we will see you on the Sega side. Stick up!